Please join me in the prayer of illumination. God of ending surprises, life is a tapestry of moments woven together as we long to be weavers of love. Today, we gather and pray that you will unravel our bias, unravel our assumptions, unravel whatever it is that keeps us from you. And as you do, clear space in our hearts for your word. We are listening. We are praying. Amen. The Old Testament reading today is from Proverbs chapter 4, verses 10 to 19. You can find that on page 578 in the Old Testament version, Old Testament version of the Pew Bibles in, in the front of you in the pew pads, pew racks there. This is the admonition to keep the right path. Hear my child and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of the instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it, for it is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot keep, they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of righteousness is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what they stumble over. The word of the Lord. The second scripture reading today comes from the New Testament book of Acts. If you'd like to follow along with me, it's on page 127 in your pew Bibles. The story is a longer text, but it all has to hold together for us to be able to dig into it. Meanwhile, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand 
and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. And for several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. This, too, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The story told in the book of Acts begins after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when those who follow Christ aren't yet called Christians or church, but simply the way. You see, to them, church was a verb and not a noun. And maybe it should be that way now, too. Church in the sense that we are always moving following the Lord, following the Spirit. They were on the move, and they were already suffering for their faith. And Saul? Saul was that mean person at the center of it all, all the persecution, the murder. In Acts chapter 7, we are first introduced to Saul following the stoning of a leader of the church named Stephen. The text reads, they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him, and the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And later, when Stephen is buried, Saul is recorded as ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women and committing them to prison. So it's more than surprising that in the middle of Saul's violent path of destruction, God unravels Saul's identity and worldview as a persecutor of Christ followers. The light breaks around him, and after this encounter with the resurrected Christ, Saul's eyes are still open, but they saw nothing. He enters Damascus with the help of his friends, 
He doesn't see or eat or drink for three days, and he manages only to stumble along with the help of his equally violent friends who are now required to lead their leader by the hand. We're not told when the conversion switch turned off in Saul's head, when it turned off to his old identity and on to his new, but it seems to be a process. And the process is basically one of walking around in the dark for a while, asking maybe the deep questions of life that we wonder about in the dark. Who am I, Lord? Why am I here? What are you calling me to do? Once in Damascus, the story takes a turn toward this character named Ananias, someone who also is just minding his own business and who himself is vulnerable to Saul's threats. Ananias hears a voice too, but Ananias doesn't question who the voice is because he already knows it belongs to God. And like many of God's special children, Ananias pushes back, argues with God, argues with the voice and says, Lord, I've heard about this man. But the Lord doesn't let him off the hook. He says, go, and Ananias goes. And we aren't told, though I hope, that Ananias took a friend or two with him. But when he arrives at the house of Judas, it's a full room. Because this isn't just Saul's story. But the new calling of his friends who had their purpose and worldview turned upside down, it's the story of enemies transformed into brothers. And it all hinges on Ananias being able to see the church's greatest enemy as an instrument of God. It all hinges on Ananias' willingness to place his hands on someone he surely felt dislike, to touch him and to bless him so he might see the world anew. There's a full room at the house of Judas. Persecutors and the persecuted seeing people who are blind and blind people who are beginning to see. And I think we are in that room somewhere too. We who are in various stages of seeing the light, of being encountered by God, of being led by the hand, of beginning to see. Though God characteristically does not reveal the full extent of this new path, Saul turned Paul will eventually endure prison, persecution, travel, trials, yet the new path also comes with new life and community and belonging and healing and hope. Paul the apostle will be called particularly to welcome Gentiles into the fold and is credited with authoring 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Sometimes God calls us into completely uncharted territory. Sometimes our unraveling is simply a holy and a fresh start, a second chance to get it right. In these days of too much hate and violence, I recently found inspiration in the story of a man who found himself transformed from a leader in a white supremacist neo-Nazi group to a producer, author, and speaker countering racism and extremism. His name is Christian Picciolini, and he was recruited 
to the movement at the age of 14 when he was drawn in by someone who gave him a false sense of identity, community, and purpose in the neo-Nazi movement. He says it allowed him to project his self-hatred onto others. And while still in high school, he committed violent acts against Jewish and LGBT individuals and was kicked out of several schools because of it. Once he married and had a child, he says he compromised by getting off the streets, but instead he opened a successful music store selling white power music, but carried other genres as well. And in his TED talk called My Descent into America's Neo-Nazi Movement and How I Got Out, he relates how he came to know two men shopping for music with their child. He realized the love this couple had for their son was the same as the love he had for his own, and his eyes began to be open. He began to see the light. It's hard to watch the TED Talk at first. It's hard to hear what he did. But as he goes on, it's a story of conversion through relationship. And as he gets to know these people in the store who come in for these different kinds of music, he decides to get out of the movement altogether. And to this day, he's helped over 100 people disengage from a philosophy of hate. He got them out. And he says that the key to it was listening for the potholes in their lives, for the trauma, the abuse, the unemployment, the neglect, the loneliness, and then to seek to fill in those potholes with empathy and compassion. He challenges all of us to find someone undeserving of compassion and give it to them. Hans Moll in Identity and the Sacred describes a few steps that take place in the conversion process that I think you can see in Christian's story or in the conversion of Saul. First is the detachment from former patterns of identity. Second is a time of meaninglessness, of immorality or isolation. Third is a dramatic transition from darkness to light and from chaos to meaning. And fourth and most important for our context is the faith community supporting and accepting this new one into their life together. As we think about our life together as Fairmount Church, we need to think about who our neighbors are today and who God is calling us to serve and how we go out and serve them as well as inviting them in. Few people have experienced that radical transformation like Saul did, or like Christian did, from hate to love. But I think a lot of us can be in the place of Ananias in the Acts story, because we've been the ones to have our worldview changed about who God is calling, to have those categories shifted in our mind, and to be more inclusive, more generous, more accepting. We have seen God transform even the most surprising people by breaking in on their ordinary paths and drawing them in to see the light. We have extended the hands of our compassion and been humbled by our participation in someone else's transformation, even when it's surprising, especially when it's surprising. I once served a church where the custodian became a healer. To be fair, most members of that church staff who hung around long enough and most um, 
of us who came in and out on a daily basis encountered sufficient brokenness that we learned to engage with struggling human beings that became the norm. Even if we couldn't offer real assistance, there was always something to give, even if it was a bag of groceries we kept in the pantry or a prayer before they got on their way. But this custodian was special. He didn't have an office like the rest of the church staff. He, he had a desk in the corner of the boiler room. And it was strewn with tools and work orders and cups of cold coffee. He wore long hair and shirt sleeve tattoos with a husky voice from a lifetime of smoking and tired eyes that still shone with the light of Christ. Kevin came to work at the church via the criminal justice system. Convicted on drug charges, he ended up serving time in jail, and an older member of our church who was an active Stevens minister began a correspondence with him by those old-fashioned things called letters. And through their series of letters back and forth, this member gradually and gently talked of the grace of God available to everyone and challenged Kevin to take a new path, to start over, to receive the forgiveness of Christ, to repent, to turn around. They continued to write back and forth, and Kevin, he took those words to heart. So months later, when he was released, he came to the church. He started attending the Narcotics Anonymous meeting there, and he had about 250 hours of community service to complete. That's a lot of time. And because he was familiar with the church and, and the NA group and, and the member who had written to him, he came and he asked if he could serve his hours at the church. So he washed windows for us. He painted rooms. He did small construction projects. He completed things that our recently retired custodians couldn't do. He supervised young people who came to work off their own community service hours, always asking them what happened and not being afraid to ask how they were going to change. He sat at the back of the sanctuary during worship most Sundays, and eventually he was baptized and became a member. He became so essential to our life together through his volunteering that we brought him on as a full-time employee, and that's how we hired a custodian and ended up with a healer. Kevin did most of his assigned work. But due to his unique status of being in recovery and a recent believer in Christ, he was able to see people through all this stuff. Beneath the facade, beyond the addictions, he could be spotted counseling somebody in the hall. He could be seen driving his car with a truckload of food to the shelter after one of our dinners. He took people to the halfway house and to recovery programs. He pushed a broom while blasting Christian music. He prayed with people in the corner. He went on work mission trips in the United States following disasters. He changed our community of faith. People showed up not to see the pastor, but to see Kevin. We started having events for biker groups passing through and worship services for those in recovery. And after knowing all he had been through and the difficulty of his path, the highlight for me was when our vacation Bible school director asked Kevin to play Jesus. On the last day of VBS that year, he walked down the aisle in a crown of thorns, carrying a cross on his back and with tears in his eyes. 
It was a sight I will never forget, a complete transformation of a life captured by God. He gave us all hope. But a few years later, we caught him stealing a couple hundred dollars in cash from church concert donations, and we had to let him go. The session struggled with the decision and extended as much grace as possible, and we all grieved that his path had took such a turn. We drove him to the next recovery program. We prayed with him, and a lot of us still keep in touch. I don't think he's done being a healer in God's kingdom. And I share this story because too often we talk about people who've made it, who've been captured by God and who start off on their new path, who've seen the light and our blessing for all of their days. But sometimes we underestimate the difficulty of staying on that path. Transformation is a winding and crooked road, and just seeing the light isn't enough to make it. Like the friends of Saul leading him in his blindness, no one can do it alone. And just because we might have been the ones who came alongside others to help them, then had our hearts broken as they turned away, doesn't mean we can stop holding out our hands. Like Ananias, we are called to go to people we might consider undeserving, surprising, not worthy of grace, and to offer them the blessing that comes from God as a church and as followers of the way that is Jesus Christ. We are there for people when their lives are unraveling, helping them to weave the strands back together, even if we know full well they might come unraveled again. The last verse of the Proverbs text, if you read it in the message translation, reads like this, the ways of right living people glow with light. The longer they live, the brighter they shine. If you were like Saul, caught up in the patterns of behavior destructive to yourselves and others, then look for the light. It may come through a friend who tells you the truth may come through your eyes being open to the hurt you are causing or even a sense that everything is unraveling within you and around you. Once you see the light, trust God with the steps you'll take on the path ahead and realize you'll never make it on your own, so find someone to take you by the hand, a sponsor, a friend, a counselor who will aid your transformation and pray for the strength to take that one day at a time. And if you are like Ananias, don't give up and be afraid to shine. The ways of right living people glow with light, the author of Proverbs says. Your path, our path, is not an easy one. Remember God said that he would show Saul how much he must suffer. And that's one of his favorite people. We suffer when we love other people. We get our hearts broken again and again as we accompany them on the crooked road of transformation. They will progress and regress, mess up and start over, yet God continues to call us to reach out our hands, to pray, to bless even when our hands are tired. Wherever you are in God's house, know that it is a full room those who've been converted and shine with light, and those in need of conversion who cannot see the next step, the more we walk together converted 
to both God and to our neighbor, we will see the light. Open our eyes, Lord, and help us to see. Amen.